what I'm engaging with in my research now is I'm, I'm asking a very fundamental question here, that when we look at the geographical distribution of where smileys are today, of where they have been for the last 500 years, we notice a very interesting pattern. So our imams at several periods in history have exercised direct political power, of course, under the Fatimids in Egypt, mm-hmm. later in the Alamut period in northern Iran. And what's interesting is that after those periods of political power came to an end, Ismailism within those areas eventually disappeared as well. Welcome, I'm your host Sahil Badruddin, and today we have with us Dr. Daniel Bieben, Professor of History at Nazarbayev University. The Institute of Ismaili Studies recently published his book, The First Aga Khan, The Memoirs of Imam Hassan Ali Shah, and in 2009, Dr. Bieben chose to become an Ismaili, so during the course of this installment, we're excited to talk to him about his motivations behind it. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, sir. Congratulations on the release of your translation of the memoirs or autobiography of Imam Hassan Ali Shah. For those unaware, your book was completed in conjunction with Dr. Daryush Mohammadpur and published by the IIS. Imam Hassan Ali Shah, as we know, was the Imam who migrated from Persia to the Indian subcontinent. To start, could you give us a couple of examples of what were for you the most surprising and unexpected or even heartwarming anecdotes you learned about the imam or the community at that time? Sure. Well, perhaps first I, I could say a few things more generally about the book and, and why I think it's a, an interesting and important book for the Jamaat and more broadly for a general readership. Well, first of all, it is the the, the, the first autobiographical account we have from a Nazari imam. We have, of course, from, from earlier imams, snippets of farmans, of various sayings and whatnot, but this is really the first book that we can say definitively came from the hand of a Nazari imam that really gives us a full account of his life and, and, and really gives us a, a deep sense of the, the everyday life of, of one of our imams. So it, it's a very important book for that reason as well. And more generally, I, I think it's an important book because it, it really speaks to something that has struck me as a very significant gap and what I would call the historical consciousness of our Jamaat, which is that we, you know, we, we talk a lot about the Fatimid era, about the, the Alamut period, about a lot of famous scholars and authors who lived in this period. And then, you know, after this, in the 13th century, we have the Mongol conquests, we have the destruction of the Ismaili headquarters at Alamut, the, the murder of Imam Ruknani Khorashah, uh, and then after that, you know, of course, uh, the history of the community moves into a, a very obscure, very dark period for a number of centuries. Right. And it's a period that still relatively little is known about. You know, some of the imams from this period, we know basically nothing more than, than their names. And that really changes, I think, for, for most of us with Imam Sultan Muhammad Shah, we often think of as the, the imam who really brought the community into public consciousness, who really brought it back into the light in that sense. And certainly there's no question about the very pivotal and and definitive role that Imam Sultan Muhammad Shah played in in our history. 
But the, the changes we see in the community under him did not come out of nowhere. And mm -hmm. I think one of the big questions and something that really struck me as an interesting puzzle as I was began researching Ismaili history was that how do we explain this sort of gap of going from this period of almost complete obscurity to the very large public profile that Imam Sultan Muhammad Shah had? And so I, I think one of the, the major agenda items for Ismaili history at this time is explaining that, that transition in more depth. And, and Imam Hassan Ali Shah was a very pivotal figure in that transition. So the, the book really provides us a, a great deal of insight into uh, what I would call the, the, the beginning of the, the modern period of Nizari, Ismaili history. Interesting. And it, it really shows some of the transformations that had occurred with, within the institution of the imamate within those preceding centuries. And one of the things we see over and over again that comes up in this book is the way that this imam in particular, and uh, of course the imams before him, were received as spiritual authorities outside of the Ismaili community, more broadly within the territory of Iran and Afghanistan, Central Asia, India, through all the areas that, that he traveled. We see communities, individuals, groups who are respecting him as a Sayyid, as a descendant of the Prophet, as a holy figure, right. as a saint even, but not people who would formally consider themselves to be Ismailis in, mm -hmm. in a strict sense. And I think this is one of the things that, that is very important for us for understanding this historical transition, where we see more broadly in the Muslim world after the Mongol conquest, there is a, a sort of decentralization mm -hmm. of authority that takes place. And in the absence of the caliph, of the more centralized institutions, it is really um, the, the Sayyids, the, the, the Sufi sheikhs, the, the holy men, people like the imams, who take on this position of religious authority at a more local level. And earlier scholars have, have talked about this phenomenon of the sort of more Sufi-like shape that the community, that the imam takes uh, after the Mongol conquest, and have considered it to be more of a practice of taqiyah, sort of a way of, right. of disguising their religious affiliation, mm -hmm. of, of trying to protect their religious identity. And, and one of the things I've argued here in writing about this book is that I think we need to reevaluate this, that, that this is actually a much more deeply rooted, a much more organic transformation that's occurring within the imamate. And, and we see it particularly in the case of Imam Hassan Ali Shah, where it was publicly known to everyone at that time, that he was the imam. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's spoken about openly in the sources from this period. He speaks of it openly in his book. But at the same time, there are many different groups he comes into contact with, again, who, who do not necessarily recognize him as the imam, but who respect his position, again, as a descendant of the prophet, as a, a sort of holy person, someone who has this very close connection with God. And so, so all these sort of anecdotes that come out throughout the course of the book is one of the things I found the most interesting. I think something that really illustrates the very transformed nature of, of the imamate under him. Mm -hmm. and, and that I think really explains how the imamate in the 18th and 19th century was able to obtain this more public profile that reached its fruition under Imam Sultan Muhammad Shah. Yeah, that's interesting. So were there any particular stories specifically from the imam you can recall that would be very interesting for the community to hear about? Well, you know, there's a lot of very interesting anecdotes that, that emerge from this book. And I should maybe mention something about the context here. 
The Imam earlier in his life had been appointed by the Qajar ruler of Persia as governor of Kirman province, located in southeastern Iran. And he had served in that position for about two years. It's a rather long story, but eventually there's a series of events that occur that lead to a falling out between him mm. and, the, and the government of, of, of Iran. And then later he is dismissed from his post as governor, and he perceives that there is a plot moving against him at court. Mm. So, so he decides rather than surrendering himself that it would be more wise to actually take up a defensive position in, mm. within his, his castle there in, in Kirman. And, and this leads to the beginning of a, of, of a revolt against the, the government of Iran that lasts for, for about a year, at the conclusion of which he is forced to, as you know, migrate from, from Persia to India. And throughout the, the course of this revolt, there are many stories where he is seeking help, assistance from local local notables, local landlords, people who had clearly a very long-standing family relationship with mm-hmm. him. There, there's one case where he is on the run from the uh, royal troops, and he comes to a, a castle of a local ruler there and, and is asking for his help. And there's actually a text of, of the letter there in which the, the, the lord of the castle writes to him and talks about how much he respects his Sayyid ancestry, how mm. much... The, the very long-standing ties between their families. And, and this letter in particular, I think, gives a lot of sort of example of, of the way that the authority and the standing of the Nazari imams had become very deeply embedded within the social landscape of mm. Iran, and particularly in these border areas in Kerman, Baluchistan, the Sindh area in neighboring India, where much of the imams' travels over that period take place. And, and it's an area where, historically, the government of Persia had not exercised a great deal of central control. These were sort of uh, kind of a, a Wild West area where, yeah. where there's not a, a great deal of centralized government. And it's exactly in these type of areas where people like the imams are able to exercise a, a degree of authority based on their Syed ancestry. Mm. And where there's a very long tradition of... Sayyids being able to mediate disputes between mm-hmm. different groups, essentially because they're seen as this sort of uh, neutral outsider, again, because they're, they're not necessarily representing a local tribal group, but because they, they have this ancestry right. traced back to the Prophet Muhammad. And so we see the imam playing this role over and over again, where he is either at first trying to mediate on behalf of the government of Persia, and, and local elements of society later between uh, the British government, the, the British government in India, and over and over again trying to mediate disputes between people, trying to find ways to, mm-hmm. to, to resolve conflicts without resorting to bloodshed. And, and this is something he comes to again and again in the book. Mm-hmm. And it's something he very much puts out there as his own role, uh, something that he can perform, again, as a Sayyid, as someone who, who has this respected genealogy of, of helping to mediate disputes. So, so we see a lot of examples on this in the book, and there are other examples that come up in other sources that talk about this period as well that really highlight his mm-hmm. role. So again, really illustrating the, the sort of broader role of the imamate beyond his more strictly defined role as the Ismaili imam. So I want to talk here about the Ismaili community, and mm-hmm. specifically 
in 2009 that you became an Ismaili. Can you share a little bit about your story, specifically how and why you chose to do this, and what particularly motivated or inspired you? Sure. Well, it's a very long story. I'll give you some <laughs> of the abbreviated version of it. It's something I'm right. hoping to, um, as you know, I, I'd like to write something about this in more length at some point. Uh, but but to, to, to make a long story short, I, I had been studying about Islam uh, really since I was in my, my later years in high school. Uh, I was raised in a Roman Catholic family, but you know, was always encouraged to, to study, to, to learn about other traditions. And I think one of the questions that drove me from early on was, I would term it the, the, the problem of religious pluralism. Mm. That you know, there, there are many different faiths, who, many of whom claim a sort of exclusive access to the truth, a sort of exclusive path to salvation. And, and this always struck me as a bit problematic, you know, mm. that um, how, how can there be only one path. Si- singular path, exactly. And, and one of the things I began to really appreciate about Islam as I studied more of its history is that Islam is, I think in many ways, the only religion that, as a core part of its identity, not only accepts the validity mm-hmm. of other traditions, but in fact, right. it's almost, I would say, a doctrinal imperative to Absolutely. accept the, the validity yeah. of it. That, um, you know, Islam, I think, especially in its early stages, really conceived itself not as a, a separate religion in that sense, but really as a, a fulfillment of all the religions that had come before it. And, and that was a sort of ideal that I think really spoke to me and something that I think could really speak to a lot of the problems that, that we see in, in the world today. Of course, there is the ideal, and then there is the reality of, right. of how these things actually play out in, in, in human society. And, and as I began exploring Islam more organically, I was attending a Sunni mosque for a while. You know, I found that, that many, many Muslims, of course, embrace the same type of more exclusivist attitude that I had found elsewhere. And, and there was also this problem I began to encounter of the question of religious authority, hmm. you know, that during the, the Prophet's lifetime, there was this one unquestioned source of, of religious knowledge. But I found myself asking the same question that later Nasser Husro asked in, hmm. in his poetry, that, you know, during the time of the Prophet, we gave our bayah, we gave our allegiance to the Prophet Muhammad. But who in my time do I give that allegiance to? Who do we turn to? And, you know, I've one of the things I, I think I found is that in the absence of that clear authority for many people, there's a sort of tendency to look towards more superficial things, mm-hmm. towards uh, how one dresses, the length of one's beard, how you position your feet when you're praying, these sorts of things, which always struck me as kind of missing the larger point, I mm-hmm. think. So, so this naturally led me to investigate the Shi'i tradition more. And then eventually led me towards learning about the Ismaili tradition later, the, the, the Ismaili uh, interpretation of, of Shi'i Islam. And, and well, again, to, to make a long story short, led me to, to realize the importance of the living imam. That when we look at the, you know, even during the lifetime of the prophet himself, of, of the 22 years that he engaged in his prophetic career, the needs of the community changed at that time, mm-hmm. somewhat drastically even. Even, you know, the, the direction of prayer mm-hmm. changed in those 22 years. Continuously, things changed. Exactly. And so the question for me then, if, if the needs of the Muslim community 
change that great even in those 22 years. Mm -hmm. But yet there are those who would suggest that somehow at the end of his career, everything was finalized, everything, we had all the information we would need for forever after. This simply struck me as illogical, that, that there, you know, the, the needs of, of the Muslim community, of the human community more broadly would continue to evolve. And you know, I, I simply don't believe that God would abandon us with only a book, that there must be some other source of interpretive authority uh, to help guide the community. So this is what led me to, again, uh, to, to make a long story short, to realize the necessity of a living imam who, who could serve as that role. So what's interesting to me about your situation is that while the world, uh, especially the West, is becoming more secularized, you actually chose to follow a new religion. And it's one thing to study the Ismaili faith as a scholar or academic, but it's a completely different thing to immerse yourself in the faith and develop conviction that Mm -hmm. leads to adopting that faith. For someone to profess a new faith, it generally requires them to be moved, I believe, both emotionally and intellectually. In our community, as in many others, we have a certain segment across all age groups that I would say might be ambivalent towards the faith. So I'm curious about the intellectual and emotional bases that led to you adopting the faith. Was one more important than the other? Well, to begin with, mm-hmm. I think I would actually challenge one of the premises okay. of, of that question, which is I'm, I'm not convinced that the world or even the West actually is secularizing. Mm. Okay. Um, I, I think uh, there is a, an expectation among many people in academia, people in, in policymaking, that secularization actually occurs as a, as a process of sort of a by-process of, of economic development of greater scientific knowledge. But I think right. if we look at a lot of the one events, of the theories, right? It is, yeah. yeah. And it's actually something that has been challenged to a great extent in a lot of the academic literature of recent years. You know, if, if we look more broadly at what's happening in the world, but even in a lot of recent events, I think really challenges the idea that mm-hmm. that even the West is, is secularizing. And, and yeah. the other thing I would, I would say that I think we are becoming more and more aware of is that even among people who would claim a position... As, mm-hmm. um, as a secular individual or even an atheist, I believe that that religious impulse is still there and mm-hmm. still plays out and manifests its ways uh, in, in different in ways. ways that people might not right. even recognize. And, and a lot of uh, recent literature in, in the field of religious studies has looked at how things like sports teams or exercise or even political yeah. movements can, can take on very similar functions that that religion yeah. performs. One of the things we're seeing is we're seeing people not choose a particular faith, mm-hmm. right? Even though they might perhaps have the religious impulse and that impulse expresses itself in different ways. What struck me, what struck us, was you chose a particular mm-hmm. faith, right? <clears throat> not rather than the, the aspect that in today's age, whether you see people moving away from religion or even not picking a religion. Yeah, and I think what I would say to that is that we all choose, in a sense, whether we mm-hmm. choose consciously or not. Of course. And right. I'm reminded of something that Reza Aslan once said, and, mm. and he himself was quoting somebody else, I think, but that it's better to drink from one six-foot well rather than six one-foot wells. One foot wells right. and, and he quoted, he was quoting the Buddha. Oh, was it? Okay. Absolutely. So I, I think... 
I think the important thing is that, that we be cautious in our choices mm -hmm. and, and be cautious in our motivations. And for, for me, so I, I would say intellectually, you know, as I, as I mentioned previously, it was thinking about the nature of religious authority, about, about, about the need for an interpretive guide for the Quran. And, you know, a lot of the, the, the very similar arguments, I think, when you read a lot of the accounts of people like Nasser Khosrow, who in the past have been led to embrace Ismailism, are often cited. But I think it's also important to note that that intellectual engagement will only take you so far. Mm -hmm. And there, I think it's not an accident that many people who convert into the Ismaili tradition do so either through marriage or in association with marriage, as I did as well. Uh, because that, that social element is very important as well. Of the way in which the Ismaili Jamaat takes care of each other, the way it provides not only a, a family, but a, a sort of social safety net, a sort of a social network. Mm -hmm. A that, community. A community, exactly. And, and that community is, is central to it, that we don't move through this world as simply as individuals making our own intellectual decisions, that, mm -hmm. that we, we have to think about the community, about the society in which we operate. And so for me, it was also that exposure I had to the Ismaili community and, and seeing the way that the religion, the sort of intellectual ideals of the religion manifested itself in the form of the community, which was for me what, what really spoke to the truth of that. Given you're a scholar and somebody who chose the Ismaili faith, I feel, I feel you're in a position to give an insightful answer to the question, what does it mean to be, quote, a knowledgeable Ismaili? What I mean by this is that there are generally two basic areas of knowledge related to our faith. One is the history of the Ismailis, Islam, something that could be taught in really in any history or social studies classroom. And the other is Tariqa or Ismaili-specific knowledge, that is, our tenets, beliefs, practices, theology, etc., in the past, just to give an example, in the past, such as in the Fatimid times, the Jamaat would get deep Tariqa-specific knowledge from the Da'is, or later in the Indian subcontinent, for example, from the Peers, Kinans, or in other devotional music. Today, because of the work of many scholars, such as at the Institute of Ismaili Studies, we generally have solid academic knowledge of our history, which is obviously critical. But... What I'm getting here at is that, but if a definition of a, quote, knowledgeable Ismaili also includes a deep understanding of the Tariqa, of Tariqa-specific knowledge, how do you feel the Jamaat's increasing reliance on academic knowledge without a correspondingly deep Tariqa knowledge base would affect our emotional and spiritual attachment to our faith? I think our Jamaat is in a, especially the Jamaat in the West, is at a very critical period in history right now, where we have an older generation who has come from deeply religious countries like Pakistan or India, mm -hmm. who were very well versed in that sort of Tariqa knowledge that, that you mentioned, even, even beyond that in a sort of broader knowledge and culture of Islam. Mm -hmm. And... 
but who don't necessarily have the sort of academic background, the sort of academic knowledge that, that you describe. And, and now we have children in the younger generation growing up here in the West who are not, don't have the benefit of that exposure to the broader Islamic environment that growing up in a place like Pakistan, for example, adheres. And I, I think we, we need to really give a lot of thought to the religious education of the coming generation. And one of the things I, I would emphasize here is I, I think we need to give more thought especially to how we utilize academic knowledge of Ismailism, of Islam more generally. Certainly the work of, of, of the IIS in, in publishing these texts and bringing these sort of studies to light is, is critical. And mm-hmm. it has allowed us to reconstruct entire periods of our history, of our, of our literary history that, that were simply unknown exactly. to, to earlier generations. Right. But what I fear sometimes is that we are not equipping our young people with the proper tools to really understand and contextualize these studies. That if you want to take an academic approach to religion, to Ismailism, you can't just simply read books about Ismailism. You can't just simply read the core texts of, of Ismailism or of Islam. What, what you really need is a deeper understanding, I think, of religion itself. If you're going to engage in that academic study of religion, then you need to approach religious studies in a broader sense, beyond simply reading books about Ismailism. And even beyond that, I would say that we really need to engage our young people in, in a deeper study of the social sciences, of the humanities, to appreciate that religion is a social institution. And I think this is where a lot of young people today that I have seen really come to a, a point of frustration in, in dealing with, with religion. Because there is a, there is a perception, I think, that, that because God is perfect, that therefore religion mm-hmm. must be perfect. And I think this reflects a misunderstanding, that the religion is not the thing itself. The religion is not divinity itself. Religion is, a, again, a human institution that mediates right. that relationship for us, that, that helps us to come together as a social community and to develop that relationship with the divinity. And because it's a human institution, it will be flawed, and it will change over time. And our judgment of its leaders, of the, the choices and decisions made by the institutions will change over time. And I think one of the things I have seen oftentimes with young people is that they have been raised with this more kind of traditional understanding of religion, of the tariqah, and then have an exposure to the academic study, but aren't really given the proper tools to contextualize, to understand what they're reading, and suddenly find that there are Flaws, that there are things that people in the past did that may not reflect our present day morality, that, um, you know, that, that may not have. Of course, right. And f- for many young people, I think this is, becomes a point of confusion and, mm. and may lead to them deciding that, well, religion must be false then, or mm-hmm. at least not something that, that is uh, not something for me because it's not perfect. And I think we need to challenge that expectation that religion is always going to be perfect, that it will always reflect that sort of perfect divine understanding. And this is where studying social sciences like history, like anthropology, philosophy, literature, 
can, can provide that deep contextualized understanding of how human society works. And if we understand better how human society works, of how human history works, then we can understand better how religions, how religious institutions, how Ismailism has worked throughout history. So this is really where I see the benefit of studying Ismaili history, but studying it within the context of a broader appreciation of, of history. And one of the things I, I fear for in our Jamaat is that so many of our young people are being really encouraged to study you know, the, the STEM sciences, to study mathematics, engineering, accounting, right. finance. And this is, of course, very common with a lot of predominantly immigrant communities in the West. But, but this alone is not sufficient. You can't just simply study engineering and then read a couple books about Ismailism mm -hmm. on top of that. You, you need to have the liberal arts there, the humanities, the social sciences, that, that will help you, first of all, to, to take a more human-centered approach to your own work as an engineer, as a doctor, as an accountant, what have you. But then also help you to, to really contextualize and understand the, our own literary history, our own uh, the own history of, of our Jamaat, of our Tariqa. And so moving forward, I think this is what, to answer your original question, I think mm -hmm. this is what it will really mean to become a knowledgeable Ismaili. It's not someone who simply knows Ismailism well, but who knows human society well, and, and who can appreciate the way in which the Tariqa has functioned within different human societies at different times, and how it has responded to those different needs in time, and, and how that is reflected in the position of our Tariqa today. No, I think that's absolutely critical. What I want to go off of is you mentioned in your answer that there's sometimes a misunderstanding of both academic knowledge and then how that applies with Tariqa-specific knowledge. How can the Jamaat, and in your case you mentioned the youth, find this appreciation for academic knowledge than also tap into this deeper Tarika specific knowledge and find that balance and how can they tap into both effectively? I, I think really one of the greatest resources we have in our Jamaat today is our older generation, the people who, who know these stories, who know the Ganans, who know these... Um, Some of these lessons. Exactly. Right. And, and I think... Um, Again, with, with the, the very strong emphasis on the academic knowledge, mm -hmm. on the work that institutions like the IIS are producing, I, I worry sometimes that those other forms of knowledge are discounted or yeah. are seen as somehow in conflict with that. Or it's sometimes also almost not as relevant or competent. Exactly. And, and so I, I would really like to see opportunities given where, where young people, other people, can, can bring those types of knowledge together, can really appreciate the, the very deeply embedded organic knowledge that our older generation has, and, and then be able to fill in some of those gaps with the, the academic knowledge that is being produced mm. elsewhere. Mm. And it's a challenge. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I want to talk about your specific case. I'm assuming you sought and found that deep Tariqa-specific knowledge in some form that led to you becoming an Ismaili because otherwise it would be surprising to learn you chose to become an Ismaili purely from our history. Mm -hmm. In that sense, and I'm going to be bold here, you are what I might call an example of a, quote, knowledgeable Ismaili. 
having good, and I use good as a general word, grounding of both historical and theorica knowledge. In contrast, for those who are born into our faith, religious or spiritual knowledge is sometimes taken as a given, without really any depth, <clears throat> reflection, or insight. In particular, I think it seems to me that we need this deep theorica knowledge grounded both in intellectual foundations, which I think, I think our youth crave, and that resonate, and here I think this is another key, that resonates with today's skeptical materialistic mindset. So now just to give an example, mm -hmm. philosophical ideas such as the universal soul, which were fashionable in the past when, when like Neoplatonism was in vogue, may not resonate with most of them today, especially in language. And while the Ginans and other devotional music offer Tarika knowledge, it is generally today taken as an emotional expression of our faith. So what do you think can be done about this? I, I think the answer here is to, to borrow a, a corporate term, human capital. <laughs> uh, that, that what we, one of the things I think we really need to focus on within the Jamaat is to develop people, individuals, who can serve as a sort of intermediary between the, the academic study and the Jamaat, and, and who can really synthesize together this older, deeper, Tariqa knowledge that, that you mentioned, and the academic study as mm. well. And people who, again, who, who also have a deeper appreciation of, of human society, of, of the social sciences, and are able to weave those together in a way that will help speak to the young people, that really help them to uh, be able to address their, their questions that, that may not come, for which answers may not come directly from the academic literature. For me, that person was my wife. My wife, Zora, who is a, a lifelong student of, of anthropology and I think in many ways reflects the type of individual that I'm talking about here, someone who has this very deep level of Tadrika knowledge, but also you know, has this academic grounding and the study of anthropology and the study of human society, and is able to bring those together. And in many ways, you know, as I was going through the, the, the process of learning about Ismailism, you know, I had read all the books. Uh, I, I knew a lot about the history. I mm -hmm. mean, I, I always have new things to learn, but I felt like I had a pretty solid grounding in the academic study of it. But really understanding how the community operates in today's society, I think, is something that, that she was able to really help me to understand. I know that she's helped a lot of other young people to understand. And I think we, we need more of those type of people out there who, who can really bring together different fields of knowledge uh, in the same way that our days of, of the past did. You know, mm. If you look again, I've done some research in, in, the, um, in, the, in, in, the, in the figure of Nasser Khusro, uh, other days like him who have brought together not only a study of Ismaili doctrine, but more broadly of, of literature, of poetry, and you know, are able to present that knowledge in different ways to different audiences mm. that, that really conveys it to them. So I think having the books and publications is, is critical. That's there. Right. I, I think what we really need to be focusing more is on developing the human capital. And 
a lot of ways I, I think we can do this, again, is I, I, and I would speak to the parents, to the older generation here, is that you know, when our, our young people are studying in college, in university, we, we should not be pressuring them only to focus on fields that will make money. You know, that, that we need to allow them space to also study the humanities. It doesn't mean they necessarily need to major in it, but, you know, give them some space to, to take some classes in anthropology, to take some courses in Islamic history. Because that, that is what is really going to help them, again, to, to contextualize all these different forms of knowledge. And then people like them can then go on to serve as Wazin and other positions within the Jamaat and, and help explain these type of concepts to hmm. the next generation. I, I think that's really the critical challenge for our Jamaat moving forward. You mentioned your wife, Zora, mm-hmm. but I want to talk on the other side of resources, of things you found helpful when you were becoming an Ismaili or when you were in that process. I find that some of these resources would be really helpful for those in the community looking to enhance their own conviction and understanding of the faith. Mm-hmm. Could you comment on what resources you found helpful and now after you know, many years as an Ismaili, almost a decade, would you suggest any additional resources? I'm thinking here of, just, just to be more clear, I'm thinking here of gaining knowledge and developing an emotional basis? You know, it, it's a little bit tricky to answer that question for me because in some ways I think I am a, an abnormal case of, of those who, who, who come into the Jamaat. Uh, again, because I, I had the privilege of, of partaking of an academic study of the faith before I came into it personally. So what, what may have been appealing to me may not necessarily have had the same effect for others. But again, I would say really the most important resource that I encountered during my time of learning about Ismailism and today as well is people, you know, just really sitting down with people who could help me to understand the, the human side of this and to really help me to understand how the community functioned. You know, I think this is also one of the challenges. What, what kind of, of people? You know, within my wife's family, okay, uh, other Ismailis I, I had met, you know, through through academic conferences, for example. You know, I, I had a long conversation with uh, Shafiq Rani, for example, mm-hmm. at a conference while I was still going through the process. And for me, I, again, that it's one thing to, to be able to read a book about something, but, but to actually be able to sit down with someone and, 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 and to really appreciate how there's such a diversity of ways of engaging with the faith. Right. You know, even within, you know, let's say, for example, the, the Houston Jamaat mm-hmm. here. I mean, you go to Jamaat Hanley, you ask 100 people there what the faith means to them, yeah. you, you'll receive 100 different, different answers. answers. Right, you know? of course. And, and when you study history, you see that there's an even wider diversity of, of ways of engaging with the Tariqa there. And, and this is one of the things I think I had initially concerned me, was that, you know, coming into a faith... You know, there are ways of doing things, there are ways of seeing, ways of thinking about religion that, that might be particular to that tradition. And, you know, I, I was wondering how much freedom I would have to really explore my own emotional, intellectual engagement with that. And, and just hearing different stories of different people, I think, really, it really helped me to understand that, 
you know, I can really carve my own path here in a mm-hmm. way. And, you know, just reading about the, the more public work of the AKDN, of, um, of, of the various Chimati institutions, I think was something that, again, really gave me an opportunity to understand how the intellectual imperatives were being reflected in, in the work within the world. And it, it really led me to reflect on a, um, well, a saying uh, from, from Jesus that in the Bible, that you may know a tree by its fruit. And, and really seeing the work of the Jamaat, of the community, the work of the Imam within the world, I think really speaks to the, the inner quality of the Tariqa and the way that it's manifested. Mm-hmm. So to me, these were all parts of the equation that, that had come together. Mm-hmm. I'd like to now approach this issue of Tariqa knowledge from a different perspective, one I think that will interest parents. You have a son, Sinan, who is three years old. As a parent and as someone who chose to become an Ismaili, what advice would you generally give to parents on materials, resources, resources that they could use to help educate their children in the faith? Yeah, it's a very, a very good question, and I think uh, there, there's a couple things I would say here. First, that parents need to be involved in the religious education of their children, and, and that might sound like an obvious point, but one of the things I experienced in my somewhat brief career as, a, as, as an REC teacher is that, you know, sometimes parents are not always involved. They, they sort of drop their, their kids off and uh, inspect the the teacher to do all the work, and so there's it, un, there's too many too much expectations on the teachers. You think? I, I I think those that knowledge needs to be reinforced at home, and that as parents we also need to be engaged in a process of lifelong learning. That you know even if we did not have the benefit of an academic education in Islamic studies and Ismaili studies. Uh, it's never too late for us to pick up a book and continue reading. Mm-hmm. And, and to engage in this, this deeper process of understanding the role of religion within human society and to think about the type of questions that our children, our younger generation, will be facing. So I, I think as parents we need to be more involved in, and to really continue our own education. And, and I would say also to embrace a more holistic approach to that, that when... You know, our children are learning other subjects in school when they're learning history, learning physics, mathematics, whatever. Think about ways in our conversations with them that we can connect that with the faith. You know, because again, I think there is a, a tendency to compartmentalize, that there is religious education hour, and then there are other subjects, mm-hmm. you know, that, that are sort of taught separately. And I worry that this leads unintentionally to, again, this sort of worldview that really sees religion as something above and apart from human society, as something apart from our everyday life. And I think if we can make an effort to constantly synthesize these together in, in, in our, for ourselves and in the mind of our children, I, I think that will, again, lead to a more holistic approach to their understanding of the tariqah. And finally, I would say, again, the, the, the social aspect is very important. You know, that having the sort of warm, fuzzy feelings that mm-hmm. come from being in Jamaat Kana, from having friends there, from being involved in, in volunteering opportunities. Um, a lot of the research on 
religious cohesion, that you know, studies that have examined why certain religious communities stay together, mm-hmm. why some religious communities might come apart, or what might cause people to part ways with, with religious communities. And oftentimes it comes down to not necessarily the more abstract intellectual arguments, but rather the social experience of that community. Mm. And this is something I think our Jamaat excels at, you know, really providing right. a lot of opportunities uh, for children of all ages to be engaged in, to, to do meaningful volunteer work. And even if that might seem trivial at times, I think we need to realize that is also part of their religious formation. Even if they're not you know, studying from a book, they're still learning, they're still forming that emotional engagement with, with the community and with right. the tradition. It's something that will stick with them forever. Hmm. So as Ismailis, we know our faith is one of continuous personal search. Then if I may ask now after being in the faith for almost a decade, what are, the, what are some areas you are still searching for a satisfying answer to? Well, one area I would really like to know more about, and perhaps know is not the right verb to, to be able to participate more in, is in the Gnams. You know, when I sit in Jamatkana, it's something I really love is hearing them sung around me, seeing the passion that other people embrace with them, seeing the type of emotional responses that they evoke. But up until now, it's not something I personally have been able to engage in. I've, I've tried to learn some Gnams. Mm-hmm. I, I have studied Western musical traditions, and, you know, Indic music has a very different tonal system, a very different rhythmic system, and I, I find it very difficult to, to be able to follow along. Of course, the language is, is not familiar to me. So it's been a challenge for me. You know, it's something I think, again, children can pick up language right. gnans like Quickly. that, but for me as a, as a middle-aged man, <laughs> it, it's a real struggle. And I guess to be honest, that's something I feel like maybe a little bit left out at times in Jamaat that I'm not able to really fully participate in that sense. So... Moving forward, that you know, now that I'm a father, that my son is at an age now where he can begin learning these, that's something I would like to participate with him, and we can kind of learn them together, and probably he'll be teaching me yeah. in a few years, I imagine. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Now, not related to administrative process, but just generally speaking, what lessons do you feel you've learned that, that would help others considering the Smiley faith? I, I think... You know, again, the most important thing is to really find someone you trust that you can speak to, that, that you can learn from, and, and really try and find opportunities to be socially engaged with the Jamaat. I'm going to be honest with you. It's a little bit difficult for sometimes in our tradition because we do have rather strict rules about who can enter the physical space of mm-hmm. the Jamaat Khanna during prayers, at least. And it can be a bit problematic, I think, for someone who is entering... The, the faith, that you can't really participate in prayers until you've already made that commitment, right? Right. You don't really fully know what you're going into. It's, that's um, one of the principles of the bayat, right? You can't... Exactly. You yeah. can't enter the tarika space until you've taken the oath. Exactly. And, and there's very good reasons why, why Hazrat Imam has, has decreed for it to be that way. But So, so how did you find that? Well, well for, for me, again, it was something I had to take on faith, I suppose, that, that it's an uh, right. environment I would find welcoming. But, but there are a lot of other opportunities, ways of, again, of socially engaging with the Jamaat, of 
you know, as, as one goes through the initiation process, you, you learn about all the different rituals. Um, you have to, of course, learn the dua. We have to recite it as part of the examination that, that you go through before you take the bayat. So I think this is what I would really encourage people who are interested in the Ismaili tradition is to, of course, read the books, you know, gain that, that information about the Tariqa and its history, but also, you know, try to become as socially engaged as, as possible and, and really get a, a good sense of, of, of the community. You know, and one of the things that really struck me as I began the initiation process, and, and one of the things I think really speaks well of the Jamaat, is that I was told very clearly, you don't have to do this, right? There's no, there's no expectation of you to do this. That if you're going to do this, yeah. meaning to become an Ismaili, mm-hmm. that you should do it because it's something that you want to do. And so I, I never got the sense that anyone was pressuring me to take Baya, to, to become an Ismaili. I contrast this with earlier experiences I had of going to, to other type of mosques and, you know, people surrounding you and they, they want to gain the credit, I guess, for being the one who will administer the shahada <laughs> to you. And, uh, and that always made me feel a bit uneasy. So, you know, so it was made very clear to me early on that, that this is something one should do out of personal conviction and, you know, not something that, that anyone in the community is pressuring you to mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. So it's important to note that. Now, I want to switch gears to your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're now working at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. Can you speak about your work there? Yeah, so I've been working at NU at Nazarbayev University for uh, about three and a half years now. And Nazarbayev University is it's a very unique institution within the region, and, and in many ways is uh, very similar to the University of Central Asia that, that the imam is sponsoring there. I see. It, it is the first institution of its kind within the post-Soviet uh, regions of, of Central Asia in the sense that it's all English medium, that it operates by all the, the standards of a, of a Western institution, that we have complete academic freedom there, which is something most other academic institutions do not have there, even within Kazakhstan. We, we have an autonomous status that is not granted to most other institutions there. So it, it is an opportunity for me to teach in the same area of the world that I research, mm-hmm. to, to really have a meaningful impact in a society that is going through a very dramatic period of, of transformation and, you know, one of the things I have found working with students there, I've also done some teaching in more informal settings within Tajikistan as well, is that students there really appreciate education and are self-reflective of their own education in a way that I haven't always found with students uh, here in the U.S. Wow. That, that are, you know, really have an appreciation for the sort of shortcomings they may have had in her earlier education. You know, in most of these countries, the Soviet legacy is still very much present and right. in the, within the educational system. And, and beyond that, you know, the, the funding that's provided, the resources that are provided for education in most of these countries is abysmal. You know, teachers are very poorly paid. They're simply not given the resources to, to be able to do a proper job. So 
so it's very refreshing to, to be able to have this opportunity to, to teach students in a place where one really gets a sense that they appreciate the education that, that they're receiving. And, and, and also to, to be able to work within an environment that is really grappling with a lot of the questions that are the focus of, of my own research and those of my colleagues, of thinking about this relationship between religion and modernity, about mm. what we were discussing earlier about the question of secularization right. and about the, the public role of religion, for example. You know, these are major questions that many countries in the former Soviet Union are grappling with today and, and something that, you know, I hope as a result of being in my classroom, students there are, are being given some of the tools to be able to really constructively engage with these questions and, and help their society. Um, and it's the same type of mission I think the University of Central Asia is now undertaking there as well. So it's, it's very exciting. One of your current research focuses is Ismailis in Central Asia, mm-hmm. uh, Iran, Afghanistan, Tajikistan. Specifically, I believe you're looking into how they became Ismailis, the people back then, from 12th to 18th century. Could you speak about this? Because I think it might be surprising to some to hear that there were conversions going on dur- mm-hmm. during this period in Central Asia. Yeah, well, it's probably not an accident that... I myself am, am a convert to Ismailism. I also <laughs> happen to study the topic of, of conversion. But what I would say is I think one of the things I, I have been arguing in my research is that a lot of the ways we think about conversion uh, within Ismailism or more broadly within, within the study of, of religion is, is we, we tend to think about the example of, of individuals who convert to religion. So people like me, for example, people like Nasser Husro or, or Hassan Sabah, these individuals who go through a very intensive period of personal search, who, who go through a period of intellectual engagement, and, and then decide to embrace a new tradition. And I would argue that, that my example is actually very atypical when we look more, more broadly at the uh, historical process of conversion to, to Ismailism. And what I'm engaging with in my research now is I'm, I'm asking a very fundamental question here, that when we look at the geographical distribution of where Ismailis are today, of where they have been for the last 500 years, we notice a very interesting pattern. So our imams at several periods in history have exercised direct political power, of course, under the Fatimids in mm-hmm. Egypt, later in the Alamut period in northern Iran. And what's interesting is that after those periods of political power came to an end, Ismailism within those areas eventually disappeared as well. Wow. If we look where Ismailis are today, where the major centers of Ismaili communities are today, and again for about the past 500, 600 years or so, they're in places like India, places like Balakshan, mm-hmm. which were very much on the sort of margins of, of right. Islamic civilization. They're not in places like Cairo or in, in Baghdad or in Nishapur, in the major urban areas of, of the Islamic world. And, and so this is an interesting puzzle that I've been exploring in, in my research. And the other part of, of the puzzle is that when we look at the historical roles of a lot of our da'is, of the people who have gone out and professed Ismailism, Again, I have focused particularly on the case of, of Nasser Husro, is that we, we think of these figures as, as scholars, as mm-hmm. intellectual figures, people who wrote books, who engaged deeply with ideas. But 
the communities in which they were living were largely non-literate communities. You know, these are peasants, farmers, nomads even. And the question I'm asking is, that what does Ismailism mean to a mountain farmer, a mountain nomad? Um, what is their understanding of, of what Nasrallah right. was teaching? And, and what does it mean to be an Ismaili and a place where Muslims themselves mm. are a minority? And one of the interesting phenomena is we see with the example of Nasr Khusro, if we look at other da'is in the Indic tradition, people like Pir Sadruddin, Pir Kabiruddin, is that in the centuries after their life, they, their own legacies take on a much broader significance within these communities. They become very broadly revered as saints, as holy people. We know among many of the Indian da'is, they are viewed as holy persons by not only by Ismailis, but by, by Sunnis, by the Asharis, even by Hindus as well. One of the things I've come to appreciate in my research on the legacy of Nasr Husro is how for, for much of the history after his death, it was really among non-Ismailis mm-hmm. that, that he came to be appreciated and recognized. His shrine became a major center of pilgrimage among all, all types of Muslims within Badakhshan. We find records of patronage Right. of uh, rulers providing support to his shrine, rulers who at the same time were going out and persecuting, massacring. And yeah. in fact, there seems to have been a sort of lack of awareness of the fact that he even was an Ismaili. He, he comes mm. to be seen just more generally as a sort of holy man. And, and this is happening in India and elsewhere as well among these Ismaili saints. So the, the process that I'm exploring is how these da'is, uh, these missionaries, who we know historically were Ismaili missionaries, who were bringing Ismailism to specific parts of the Muslim world, then come to enjoy this broader legacy, this broader renown within the societies in which they lived. And then, through a very long process in later times, how the Ismaili Dawah is then able to essentially bring a more Ismaili consciousness surrounding mm-hmm. their legacy and to, to really spread the da'wah, to spread the sort of Ismaili consciousness in a way that draws upon their legacy. I see. So I would not characterize it necessarily as a straightforward process of people converting of to Ismailism, but rather a, a very long process of how these saints' legacies then become sort of reintroduced in a way mm-hmm. by members of, of the da'wah through the institutions in a way that brings a more closer consciousness of, of having an Ismaili identity that we see happening in, in later times, particularly in the 18th and 19th century. So, so this is, I think, in a nutshell, the focus of, of my current research project. I've, going back to where Ismailis live, mm-hmm. today we know that there are some Ismailis in Almaty, Kazakhstan. Are there, are there others elsewhere and... Have you had a chance to meet Ismailis nearby? I have. There are, at, at the institution where I work at Nazarbayev University, we have Ismailis who work there, who come from, from all over the world. It, it's a very uh, cosmopolitan city. My, my colleagues there, uh, again, come, come from all over the place. So we have Ismailis there from the U.S., from Canada, from, from Pakistan, from Tajikistan mm-hmm. as well. I would say that you know, within Kazakhstan itself, uh, historically there is not an Ismaili presence there. At least since the last 500, 600 years, as I mentioned, the, the Ismaili 
presence in Central Asia has really been focused within the Badakhshan region. I see. In, in earlier periods, before the Mongol conquest, there were efforts to spread Ismailism elsewhere. We don't have any, any record of, of any trace of those communities. It seems to have really persisted the longest within the Balakhshan region. Then later in, in the 19th century, under the Russian Empire, and particularly in the Soviet era in the 20th century, there was a lot of Ismailis from Balakhshan who spread out to other areas of, of the Soviet Union. So uh, especially today, there's a very large contingent working in, in Russia. A significant part of the economy of Tajik Balakhshan is based on labor remittances that come from Ismailis who are working in Russia and Moscow mm. and St. Petersburg. There are smaller Jamaats working elsewhere in Central Asia, so within Kazakhstan and, and Almaty and, and Uzbekistan as well, and Bishkek and Kyrgyzstan. So these are essentially part of the broader Balakhshani diaspora, mm. uh, I would say. And um, of course, the situation with our Jamaat today, there are Ismailis everywhere because right. of the Global. exactly, and, and largely because of the way the Imams for the last several generations have really encouraged Ismailis to become active globally, to really seek opportunities right. all across the world, that we really have become a global community. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting how that diaspora then tends to fold back in on itself in a way that mm. in places like Central Asia, you, you have Ismailis coming from Tajikistan, but also you know, I have Ismaili colleagues, like I mentioned, from Canada, from Pakistan, who are working there as well. So they become sort of new meeting places. So it's a, it's a very interesting process. Now, in keeping with our larger vision to tap the broader Jamaat and our experienced intellectuals for their insights, what, in your opinion, are the top two or three challenges, whether it be administrative, social, societal, intellectual, educational, or any other area you feel that the Jamaat faces today? I think there are two interrelated areas that I would speak to here. First, more broadly, and, and as I already mentioned here, the, the importance of religious education for our youth. And, you know, this is something the imam has put enormous amount of resources into in recent years. And I, I think it is something that is going to require a, a very high investment, not only on the part of our institutions, but from our parents as well. That we, we need to appreciate, I think, that for a lot of our older generation, again, who, who grew up in Islamic environments that simply perhaps by a process of osmosis, you just kind of gain certain knowledge more broadly about Islam from being in that environment, that our, our kids here today are not going to learn things that mm-hmm. way. They have to be taught, and, and we can't take it for granted that they're going to learn certain things. Because of the environment they're in. Exactly. So, so I think we need to, and, and this is, I think, something I have really noticed in the materials that the IAS has been producing under the imam's direction, that there is a focus not only on learning about Ismailism, but about learning about Islamic civilization more broadly, that we need to become comfortable as Muslims. And I think this points to my, my second challenge, which is that we need to find a way to become less defensive about our position within the broader Islamic world. Okay. I think as a Jamaat, we are very comfortable speaking to other religious traditions. We represent a sort of vision model of Islam that is found to be very appealing by members of, of other religions. We're very comfortable engaging in interreligious dialogue. 
But I worry sometimes in speaking to other representatives of the Muslim community that we are less comfortable, that our youth especially feel like they simply don't have the tools to be able to speak knowledgeably about their tradition. And I think we, in the same way that we speak about religious pluralism in a broader sense, we really need to embrace the idea of pluralism within the Islamic tradition. That I think too often we allow others to set the terms of the debate, you know, that there is one correct way of being Muslim. And I think we need to be more confident, not necessarily aggressive, but more confident in our standing within the tradition, and, and to really insist on the fact that there is a room for plurality within the Muslim community, just as there is more broadly within the human community. This is something the Prophet himself repeatedly asserted, that diversity within my community is, is a benefit, that this is something... And the uh, Imam. Of course. And this is where also I think learning about more broadly about Islamic history and about learning, for example, the practice of Islam historically among the Kazakhs, something I, I teach about in, my, uh, in, in the courses I teach at Nazarbayev University. Among the Kazakhs, among the, uh, other nomadic peoples, there was a way of practicing Islam that was very, very different from how other Muslims practiced. Mm. You know, that was not centered on going to mosque, uh, that, that did not necessarily embrace the same type of traditions but that at the same time was also consciously Islam. That was also consciously part of the Islamic tradition. And I think we, as Ismailis, can, can learn from this as well by really looking at, at the great diversity of ways that Islam, Islamic practice has manifested itself today and throughout history and, and to not feel like we have to play on someone else's terms, you mm -hmm. know, that, that we can assert our own position and standing within, within mm. the, 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 the Muslim community. For, for some of these challenges you mentioned, and for the most important challenge, can you offer any insights, suggestions, and solutions as to how the Jamaat can start to address them in perhaps ways we haven't tried before or, or new ways? Well, I, I think one of the most important things is the, the type of work that you are doing with this website, with these new online media platforms, by, by exposing the uh, Jamaat to a, a broader array of, of materials, of creating platforms for the exchange of ideas, I, I think too often there is this sense that we are restricted somehow to a sort of authorized set of materials mm -hmm. that does not actually have anything, any grounding in anything the Imam has actually said. And I think we really need to take the opportunity to, uh, to read as widely as possible, to, to look to other examples. And again, I, I know I've mentioned this repeatedly here, but to, to embrace an academic study of religion beyond simply the Ismaili tradition, to really look more broadly at other interpretations of Islam, at other ways in which religion has functioned within human society, and to... Think about what sort of models that may present for us, what sort of opportunities that can present for us as a Jamaat today. And, and, yeah. So finally, Hajimam often asks the Jamaat and the leadership to think about their vision for the future, vision for the community mm -hmm. for the future, specifically in 25 years. But we sometimes 
We normally talk about these in general terms. Could you name a specific objective, perhaps, you can see the community achieve, let's say, in 25 years, and what insights or even suggestions would you give to help them address and even achieve, achieve this vision? I think one step we can really take as a, as a Jamaat is to continue this exploration of the role of Ismailism more broadly within Islamic civilization. Because I, I really think the, the youth, for those who are growing up in, in the West today, I think what they really need more than anything else is to feel a sense of confidence in their status as Muslims. You know, because one of the things I, I've learned through, through my research, as I mentioned here, there's this interesting question that we find if we look at the past of, you know, what does it mean to be an Ismaili and predominantly non-Muslim environment, right? So at the time when Nasser Husro, at the time when the peers in India were, were preaching, it was a time when Islam itself was still in an early period of development within these societies. And to be an Ismaili at that time meant more fundamentally to be a Muslim. For most non-Muslims, the sort of distinction between Sunni and Twelver and Ismaili, right. these were not so relevant. The, the bigger distinction there was between Muslim and non-Muslim. And I think we find ourselves in a very similar position today, where for people coming from places like Pakistan or Tajikistan, those type of distinctions are very important. You know, mm. you, you can be an Ismaili in Pakistan, that means something. But to be an Ismaili in America means first and foremost to be a Muslim. And that might seem obvious, but I think there's a lot of consequences for that in terms mm -hmm. of how we think about our identity. Absolutely. And I think this is really the major challenge for our, for our youth moving forward, is how to really have confidence in ourselves as Ismailis, but also as Muslims, and how to really assert a place for ourselves within the broader Muslim community, and how to serve as ambassadors, not only for the Ismaili Tariqa, but more broadly for the Muslim Ummah, for the Muslim community. And so I think this is something that the, the Imam has really directed our educational efforts towards. But again, it's going to take a lot of our own initiative as well uh, to mm -hmm. really read more broadly, to really go out and engage with sources of knowledge about the Islamic tradition and, mm -hmm. and to gain that sort of knowledge that we're going to need moving forward. Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you, Sahel. This has been really nice talking with you. Thank you for listening to this Ignition interview. For future installments, subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on social media.